The reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, through to chapter 4 and verse 16. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. He appeared in the flesh, was vindicated by the Spirit, was seen by angels, was preached among the nations, was believed on in the world, was taken up in glory. The Spirit clearly says that in later days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Such teachings come through hypocritical liars whose consciences have been seared with a hot iron. They forbid people to marry and ordered them to abstain from certain foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and who know the truth. For everything God created is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving because it is consecrated by the word of God and prayer. If you point these things out to the brothers and sisters, you'll be a good minister of Christ Jesus, nourished on the truths of the faith and of the good teachings that you have followed. Have nothing to do with godless myths or old wives' tales. Rather, train yourself to be godly, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. That is why we labour and strive, because we have put our hope in the living God, who is the saviour of all people, and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given through, uh, given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them, because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Job descriptions are very interesting things. Uh, If you've had to apply for a role, you've had to look at a job description, and all sorts of things go through your head as you read that piece of paper. Um, To an extent, you know that you can't really understand a role until you're doing the job. And if you get the job, then who you are with all of your own skills and experience over the course of time ends up changing the role somewhat. But for all of that nuance and real life, good prospective employers are going to make sure that a job description helpfully explains the role as clearly as possible. And if you're looking at a job, there are at least two big questions in your mind. The first one is, am I qualified to do the work? 
Have I got the academic qualifications? Have I got the work experience to be able to do this role? And that's going to filter some jobs off your radar. But the second question is not about you. It's about the role. What would it be like? If, if I got this job, what would it be like to do this work? What things would I have to give up in order to do it well? And, and a good job description is going to try and answer both of those questions. It's going to list those requirements and that experience that's necessary. But then it's also going to describe what the work is going to be like so that you know whether it's a role you want to apply for. And to an extent, we've been looking at the job description for elders and deacons over the last few weeks as a church family. If you're new to church this morning, you wouldn't perhaps normally be in church. Um, You might not have ever thought about how anybody becomes a church leader. Maybe you're watching the coronation last week and thought, well, it probably includes being happy to wear bright golden gowns and other things. But more seriously than that, maybe you've never thought, what, what do you need to be or do to lead a church? Well, God's word tells us with wonderful clarity what it is that you need in order for qualifications to meet the standard, to apply for the role, as it were, and then what the role would actually look like. And last week, we looked at those qualifications. As Matthew said, there are two different passages. So we're in 1 Timothy 4 this morning, the previous chapter, 1 Timothy 3. That's one of two lists. The other one's in Titus chapter 1 that lists those qualifications for eldership. This is what you need to be. And we looked particularly last week at two of them. We thought about the requirement that godly elders aspire to be elders and that they have Christ-like character. In everyday language, that means that they look and speak and behave with increasing maturity like Jesus. That's what you're looking for in good and godly leaders of churches. And this week, we're going to see how Paul explains what the job looks like on the ground. Here's the second part of the role. And actually, that's not me just trying to be clever in structuring the whole thing. That's how the whole of chapters 3 and 4 hang together. So we've got those requirements in chapter 3. And then if you look in verse 14 of chapter 3, Paul reminds us that he's not in Timothy himself. So verse 15, he's written to Timothy so that Timothy would know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. So I'm not there, Timothy, but I'm writing these things so you know how the church is to operate. What's at the heart of the church? Let me remind you, verse 16, the heart of the Christian message is that the Son of God himself took on our humanity. God showed himself to us. He has revealed himself to us so that we can believe in him and now has been taken up to glory where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, pleading, interceding on behalf of all God's people all over the world with him in the throne room. That, Timothy, is what you're to keep preaching. But it's not the only message people are going to hear. Beginning of chapter 4. 
Some are going to follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. Hypocritical teachers are going to step up and teach all sorts of false things. And some of them are going to be clever enough to spot that the best way to convince people to do something is to appeal to their strongest appetites. So specifically thinking here about sex and food. How you can twist people's desires for those things and have them thinking that the way that they do things differently is going to somehow be for their good. And these false teachers are going to cause some, verse 1, to abandon their faith. That's the reality that Timothy is living in. And it's into all of that mess and all of that spiritual urgency, because in a very real sense here, people are in danger of believing falsehood and running headlong into hell. That's the spiritual urgency that Paul's describing here. And it's into that, verse 6, that he says to Timothy, I want you to know how to be a good minister of Christ Jesus. To put it in our job description language, here is the role. Chapter 3, this is what you need to be. Chapter 4, this is what you're going to do. All of which makes it a really timely chapter for us to think about. As a church, as Matthew said, we are prayerfully considering appointing new elders and deacons in our church. And so it really matters for the existing elders and deacons to be reminded of the work that we're to do. It really matters for those who are thinking about serving in this role to be really clear in their own minds whether they are able to do a work and what that work would look like. And for all of us as a church family to know what they're going to be doing so that we can prayerfully and spiritually support them in it. So, a whole chapter. We're not going to work through every line by line. I want you to see five key principles that Paul is going to teach us here. Five things good servants, good elders of Jesus do in the mess of the world. Here they are. They're going to appear one at a time as we go through them, but we're going to look at teaching faithfully with courage, pursuing godliness with discipline, serving with our hope in God, setting an example with our whole lives, and making progress with their diligence. That's where we're going. So firstly, godly elders teach faithfully with courage. Last week we saw chapter 3 and verse 2 that elders are to be able or apt to teach. What does that actually mean? If you're with us last week, we flicked over to Titus chapter 1 and and Paul builds on this. He says in Titus chapter 1 verse 9, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. So every elder doesn't need to be gifted to do this, to preach on a Sunday to the whole church family. But every elder must be sufficiently clear in the Word of God that they can do two things. And if I put it positively and negatively, positively to encourage people in sound doctrine and negatively in that sense to refute those who oppose the sound doctrine. That's the requirement. That's the theory. But what does that look like in practice? Look at the first six verses of 1 Timothy 4. Verses 1 to 3 are describing some of the situations where false teachers 
oppose sound doctrine. And when you look at how Paul describes these people and what they're teaching, you realize that refuting those who oppose the gospel is no easy thing. Work work back through the text with me from verse 2. These false teachers have become so hardened in their sin that their consciences have been seared. Um, Another way to translate that is that their consciences have been cauterized. They've sinned so often, so often, so often. They have burnt, seared their conscience so that it's now not going to respond to future temptation. And on top of that, they're consciously lying about what they're teaching. It's not that these people are just a bit naive, a bit young, don't really know what's going on, a bit ignorant about what the Bible actually teaches. They are hypocritical liars. And behind the conscience-seared hypocrisy of these false teachers is the demonic work of the devil. That's the people that Timothy needs to refute. And then Paul goes on to remind him how to do the other half of what he says in Titus 1. You're to encourage with sound doctrine. And he he says, in this context, what does that look like? Verses 3 to 6. You need to teach them of the goodness of God's creation. You need to teach them how to enjoy the blessings that God gives. And not just in a hedonistic sense of, you know, I enjoy all the blessings in the world. But enjoy them in such a way that you bring God glory and honor in the world that he has made. That's what, if you go down to verse 11, you are to command and teach. Not your own ideas. Not some creative contemporary response that you've picked up from TED Talks that might be relevant to the pressing social issues of our day. These things. Verse 6. Timothy needs to point these things out, or, or you could translate it as lay these things before. You are to put them down and display them in all of the glory that they are in that people would see their need to trust the word of God in their lives. Verse 6. Having been nourished, this is speaking to Timothy about himself, having been nourished on the truths of the faith, objective, defined faith, and of the good teaching that you have followed. In verse 13, he comes back to the source of that good teaching. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. Scripture comes first. This is the authoritative and all-sufficient revelation of God. All preaching, all teaching comes from the book. That's what you're applying into people's lives. So let's circle back to that qualification. What does it mean that elders are apt to teach, able to teach? It doesn't just mean that you like teaching people. (laughs) That's not what the qualification looks like on the ground. If, If all it meant was you love a subject and you love speaking about that subject to other people who love hearing that subject, then everybody would love to teach. But that's not the real world. The real world is that God has called some to courageously refute those 
who are hell-bent determined to draw people away from the faith. He calls us to speak together as elders. We don't do this on our own individually. That's the blessing of being in a plural eldership. But he calls us to speak into the lives of people in the church family that we love to bits, who perhaps are convinced in their own minds that what they are doing is spiritually good and right, when actually it is sinful and wrong. And all of that reminds us that this is not a responsibility to take lightly. It's what James reminds us in James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So throughout all of this process, for whomever the Lord will also bring onto our eldership and for those who are currently serving, would you pray for us? that we would fearlessly and faithfully teach with courage. Second thing, godly elders pursue godliness with discipline. Timothy is surrounded by a world of nonsense. Paul describes it as godless myths and old wives' tales. We think in our world that our attention span has been killed by the internet, don't we? People just scroll through social media feeds and waste hours of their lives. And and perhaps all of that is true, but it's not a new problem. In Timothy's day, people could lose themselves down rabbit holes just as well. And Timothy needed to be disciplined not to get caught up in any of that. Paul tells him, verse 7, train yourself to be godly. We're in chapter 4 of the book. This is the very first time that Paul has spoken an imperative, a this-is-what-you-must-do word, to Timothy directly. Train yourself to be godly. We've said before that you don't drift into godliness. The tide, the current in your sinful heart and in the world in which we live will push you towards sinfulness rather than godliness. So if you're to pursue godliness, that's going to take Effort And Paul does this very simple parallel of describing what it'd be like with physical training. If you want to compete in a run, uh, the best technique is not to just wake up on the morning of the run, having slept in late, wolf down a McMuffin, and see what happens. Nobody would do that. You work out what your target is. You plan for however many weeks or months in advance. If, like me, you get 14 injuries and you never manage to get there. Whatever it is, you work at it with a focus and a dedication because that's where you want to get to. And if you're all going to do that for a run, if anybody's going to do that for a run, and all of us accept that in 30, 40, 50, 60 years, none of us are going to be able to run. How much more important is it that we apply that same level of focus and commitment and a determination to finish well to godliness which has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come? Now, please don't mishear that as, oh, this is a church. They shun all the physical stuff and just tell you to think about spiritual godly stuff. There's no false dichotomy here. Paul says that physical training is of some value. And your GP in the NHS is right. It really is. 
It is of good for you spiritually, sorry, emotionally and mentally and physically. There are all sorts of blessings to physical training. But without forcing a false dichotomy, when you come to stand before the King of Kings, you will not think about the half marathon you didn't quite run in less than two hours. It's not going to be in your mind. You're going to be concerned with a godliness that has value for all things. Which is going to mean, very practically, there's going to be a world of stuff you say no to and a world of stuff that you say yes to. It's going to include not just chilling in an evening. Sometimes. You need to do that. But you are going to invest in people, in reading, in listening to good things, to train yourself, all of us, not just prospective elders here, all of us, towards godliness. Thirdly, godly elders serve with their hope in God, which is true at a superficial level. Elders serve because they hope in God. Every Christian hopes in God. Move on. Well, actually, Paul digs deeper here. Verse 10, Paul says that serving and leading a church is hard. It's not a sob story. I'm not looking for any sympathy. I don't want to undermine all the privileges and blessings of being in church leadership. But if you're thinking about church eldership, you need to know what the Bible tells you. Serving and leading a church is hard. The words that Paul uses are labor and strive. You look in the Greek dictionary, this word for labor is carrying the idea of being tired and weary because the work is hard. The word for striving is picking up an idea of engaging in intense struggle against strong opposition. They are the verbs of ministry. So what's going to keep you going? You're going to rely on your natural optimism? Are you going to hold on to the fact that you've got answers for every question you've ever come across? Are you just going to bounce through all of it because you're young and energetic or because you can read lots and your preaching is fantastic? If you're relying on any of all of those things, eldership is not for you. Godly elders have their hope in the living God. A living relationship with the living God is the only sure foundation and hope for a service of any kind, certainly for the laboring laboring and striving in eldership. And actually, putting your hope in God is wonderfully liberating when it comes to ministry. Because you stop focusing on yourself or indeed on other people. You stop thinking about how you're going to do something and it forces you to be humble and dependent. It means you're not going to quit when discipleship is slow and discouraging because God is patient and kind. It means you're not going to change what you're going to teach Because your goal isn't to please everybody or to make sure you get lots of good feedback at the end. It's to be faithful to the word of God. 
It means perhaps, perhaps for some in this room, certainly for our brothers and sisters around the world, that you may need to even be obedient to death because you know your faith is in the living God who has defeated death. And if that is what he calls you to go through in order to be faithful to your testimony, he will hold you fast. So where you put your hope doesn't just affect your eternity. It changes how you live here and now. And godly churches need godly elders whose hope is in the living God. We all need it for the good of our elders themselves so that they have that real sense of a living relationship with God in their own devotion and walk. But we all also need our elders to have that living hope for the good of the church so that as you look on, you are not fearful that their confidence will drop because they're seeking it in something else. Fourthly, godly elders set an example with their whole lives. Look at verses 12 and 16. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Verse 16, watch your life and doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We don't know how old Timothy was when Paul wrote this, but at least young enough for at least some in the church to think he was young. And if you've been in a church for any period of time, you'll know that lots of older people are just delighted that there are young people in the church because there's energy and there's enthusiasm and there's a desire to get things done. And for lots of people, it's great that there are young people in the church. But for others, it's hard. It really is. It's hard to see that this younger person, however old they may be, is actually able to be a responsible adult, let alone able to lead. And maybe that's particularly hard if the person in question has grown up through the church family and you were their youth group leader when they were some energetic tearaway and here they are now in their late 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever it is, seeking to serve. So given that it's hard, how should godly elders and aspiring elders respond if they are young? See, the temptation is to prove your authority by being overbearing. And leading with kind of strength and conviction and, and in one sense, driving forwards. Look at what Paul teaches in verse 12. Set an example for the believers in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Came across a lovely quote by a man I'd not heard of before called Ernest Scott this week in which he said, Excel in those very qualities in which youth is wont to be deficient. Gravity, prudence, consideration for others, trustworthiness, mastery over the passions. 
Be the person, in other words, who, though you may be young, is not considered to behave young. And would that shape everything about your life, my life, in what we say and how we behave and the things that we choose to love, the depth and understanding of our faith and the purity with which we engage with everyone in everything. If you're an elder or you long to be an elder, don't miss the obvious in verse 12. You can only be an example if people can see you. Can't think of eldership as, I want to get to this executive office position thing where you just go into meetings, decide stuff, and bark down the orders. That's not what it means to set a godly example in all of life. You have to live life alongside the church family so that people can see this example being lived out. And at the same time, we also as a church family need to be realistic that that doesn't mean that every member can do life alongside every elder. Just the size dynamics of life mean that can't happen in pretty much any church, but certainly in a growing church. What, what Paul is calling us to here is to make the most of every opportunity we have to come alongside people and to model to them what godliness looks like. And if I could make a very practical suggestion for all of us here, if you look at um, verse 12, there are five things listed here. Speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if as a church family we prayed each day of the week for God's protection for all of us, but perhaps especially for our elders in this context. So on Monday as a church family, we were praying for our, con- for our speech on Tuesday for our conduct, on Wednesday for our love, on Thursday for our faith, on Friday for our purity. What a remarkable thing the Spirit of God may do if the people of God were so committed for every part of our lives to be shaped by the gospel. Pray that God would be making us more and more like Jesus. Fifthly and finally, godly elders make progress with their diligence. If you look at verse 15, it's a lovely practical verse. Be be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Give yourself wholly is is literally saying be in them. Uh, The picture that comes to my mind as I was reading it was of um, a rugby player or a gardener, pick whichever illustration works best for you, who is covered in mud from head to toe because they are right in the thick of it. That's the picture that Paul has in mind. Be so immersed in all of these responsibilities that, well, what's the that? Paul tells us what the purpose is for. It's not, verse 7, because we want to train for godliness, though that's true. And it's not, verse 10, because our hope's in the living God, though that's true as well. 
Godly elders are diligent in all the works of ministry, verse 15, so that everyone may see your progress. As we live alongside one another in the Christian life, all of us, but here especially thinking about elders and prospective elders, all of us should be becoming more godly. Our relationship with God should be deepening. Our understanding of his word should be growing. Our counsel to one another should become more loving and more wise. The way that we preach should be clearer and more helpful. It doesn't matter which aspect of the Christian life you're thinking about. And in the context of eldership, those particular responsibilities that God has appointed them to do, all of them should be growing so that they can see, the church can see, your progress. But we need to remember what's implied there too. If people are to see our progress, no one starts as the finished product. Which means as we as a church family are thinking about who could serve as elders and deacons, we need to guard our own hearts from thinking that the standard required is to be able to preach or to counsel or to do any of the aspects of eldership work like one of the elders who've served for 10, 20, 30 years. If people are to see our progress, we begin further back than we will finish. There are qualifications that you have to meet. And if you don't meet the qualifications, it's not an office the Lord is calling you to. He will call you to other things. But every elder, like every Christian, is going to make progress in growing your gifts, in developing your ministry, and in becoming more and more Christ-like. So for all that we rightly long to see, for that courageous teaching and that disciplined godliness and that God-centered hope and that exemplary life and that diligent progress, we look for all of that through the lens of the gospel. Only Jesus is perfect. Every other under-shepherd, as First Peter would describe the office of elder, every other person who is seeking to serve on his behalf will be battling with sin until they die or the Lord Jesus returns. So we need to see that exemplary life, but it will not be perfect is why it's so helpful for us to come around the Lord's Supper this morning. Every single one of us, because none of us is perfect. Every one of us can think back on just this morning or this week and think, if my salvation were based on what I do or say or think, I'd be sunk. And you're not. Because your faith is not in yourself. It's in a saviour whose sacrifice was once and for all. Whose resurrection proves his sacrifice was sufficient. And who is now interceding on your behalf in the throne room of grace. So for all of us as we gather around this table, not only for those who are existing elders who've come to the end of two weeks thinking... And for prospective elders who have that same sense of dread in the right sense, 
But for all of us, the supper is a reminder that the Christian life is that others would see our progress, not our perfection. And that all of the glory in all of that would be given to the Savior of all who believe.